receiving incoming transmission. Have you heard of the Knights Templar? Great Christian role models, awesome knights who protected the Holy Land. But did you know that they were actually not Christian? They were Gnostic and they weren't cool. They were actually very, very uncool. Thanks, Gary, for ruining the Knights Templar for us. Our guest is Gary Wayne. Radical Christian. Welcome back, Radical Christians. This week we have another very special guest. It is Mr. Gary Wayne. He wrote the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. It is a big boy, just like me. Look how big that book is. Now, I've been wanting to talk to Gary since even before I had a show, and I've been wanting to talk to him about Templars. Uh, as you all know, I'm really interested in the subject of knights, and the Templars are always billed as a great Christian organization and great Christian role models, but guess what? They're not. So, let's get into it. For our paid content this week, I'm going to give you the name and book of the next guest for next week. Uh, I expect you to go out and read the whole book in a week. That's what I'll be doing. So that's your new reading assignment. And that's probably what we're going to be doing on the channel, giving reading assignments, because I want you to be in tune with what we're learning. A uh, cool praise report for the last episode, the Book of Eli episode, we had two people in the chat, in the live chat, who said that they had just watched the Book of Eli the night before. Coincidence or God's perfect timing? I think you know which one it is. Okay, greetings Radical Christians. Today we have with us another member of the Daily Renegade team. We have Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. How are you, Gary? Excellent, and uh, so happy to, to be with you and to be on your show for all the Daily Renegade listeners and thinking that what we're going to talk about today is going to be of very much of interest to them and then hopefully we can actually maybe peel back the onion a little bit to give them a better insight on why it's important for Christians to understand uh, the organization that we're going to talk about today. So for our topic today, with, with my experience as when I worked as a knight for 10 years at Medieval Times, uh, knights were a big thing. So a lot of people, they liked the Templars. They thought the Templars were super cool. They thought they were a great Christian group, great role models. And today we're going to find out who they actually really were, which I can't wait for. I've wanted to talk about this with you for a while, even before I had a channel, so I can't wait. Where would you like to start today? Anywhere where you think that is a good place to start, and we can start right at the uh, formation and we can go forwards or we can go backwards from there. Or if you want to just talk about, you know, who pe people think Templars are and work back from there, we can do that too. So anywhere, that you think is, is the right place because, like I say, this is a very large topic and we can go in a thousand different directions and all of it's very interesting. So I'll leave you to uh, decide where you want to open it up to your audience. Okay, let's talk about who people think the Templars are and then we'll go into their origins. Yeah, so typically we get a fairy tale version of the Knights Templar, which would be very much part of the doctrine aspect in terms of how they put information out there in terms of a superficial story that you need to understand the allegories and the symbolism to understand the narrative underneath and they get to put things out in plain sight and hide things. So typically what we get told is there are uh, nine poor impoverished knights that uh, start up a military order in about 1090 to 1099, depending on uh, which starting point you want to look at, that are going to help pilgrims on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem 
because it's held by the West at that point, by the Christian nations, so that they can do a pilgrimage in safety from the Muslims uh, who are attacking them along the roads all the way there, and because they want their land back. So, you know, it's basically, it's a state of war that's going on there. And uh, they become this chivalristic priesthood, knighthood organization that are fighting monks, which is kind of an Eastern concept, if you think about that, in terms of Kung Fu and things like that. Uh, again, we'll dig deeper into some of those relationships down the road. And they are the ones who are fighting for the safety of Christians and all for the good of Christians. And that's their only sort of uh, agenda. And as they grow in power, they grow in their sort of their legend and their nobility. And But they're all still part of this priesthood that are impoverished knights who take a, a vow of impoverishment and celibacy and are working for the greater good. So that's kind of the typical understanding of the Knights Templar. Uh, and then, you know, we're told they're overthrown in 1307, not for very good reasons other than they have the evil king of France who wants to steal their all of their money and their wealth, which doesn't really add up to this impoverished knighthood <laughs> doing charity and everything else and anything else that he can pillage. And he does that in partnership with uh, a French Catholic Pope that he was just sponsored to put in place so that they could bring this conspiracy all about. So you have this fairy tale story that has really nothing to do other than it's a nice narrative on the top as to who they really were, what they were really doing, what their original originations were, and how they affected history thereafter and right up to our time and again will continue to affect things as we go into the end time. So that's what I heard about them. And now when when I saw your videos of your interviews and saw your, your book, that coupled with researching Freemasonry and seeing them linked to the Templars so many times, I was like, wait a minute, how are they linked to these bad things, but they're supposed to be the good guys? And then when I yeah. saw your stuff, it kind of just like, boom, just blew yeah. my mind. And I was like, yeah. oh, no, it, it kind of felt, I didn't want to believe it at first because they were so cool. They seemed that, so cool. That is the experience over and over and over and over that awakened Christians and awakened people who will likely come back to the faith once their eyes start to open get. And it's not just once. It's just it's just this sort of continual amount of tsunamis that are coming in that are just sort of, you know, shaking your previous concept uh, of the world and everything that happened. And the Templars are just one of those sort of tsunamis, but it starts to make some sense out of the world once you understand it. So the things that you kind of brushed over before, you don't brush over anymore. And that's when that sort of critical analysis sort of starts. So this nine impoverished monks, let's start with there. Actually inside the order, they have 11, not nine. Mm -hmm. And some people even say 12, and I'll throw the 12th one in there as we go. And these weren't just impoverished monks. There were two monks that were Cistercian monks. And I'll throw this out maybe a little bit earlier than I, than I normally would, but when you have a Roselle and Gondomer, uh, which are the Cistercian monks, this is a Gnostic monastic 
polytheist order, which has a similar organizational structure and belief system that the Templars are going to have set up. But it's not what the Templars have as a complete organizational hierarchy and organizational structure, which again we'll probably get into later in terms of where that comes from. But you have to understand that these educated monks that go into these, these Gnostic monasteries mold within Catholicism are generally from a nobility. So these aren't poor people. They are siblings of the firstborn that tend to go in there but are born later. And they become a significant part of the priesthood class as they mold into mold their Gnostic religion. As and again, we haven't talked about that connection, but their polytheist religion that they truly worship into the Catholic Church to take that over, which is a key part of what the Templars are created to do. So when we get Godfrey de Bouillon and Hugh de Payon and Anjou, uh, the folk of Anjou as he's listed, I can't remember his first name. These are important nobility class first sons of kings out of France. And of course Anjou is the most famous name and Anjou has an etymology that goes back to Anu and the mm -hmm. Nephilim of the Anu and with the An, you know, it's just Google it, you'll, 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 you'll figure that out pretty quick. I won't go into that because that's just another rabbit trail. But they have these are just part of the kings. And so whether or not it's Montabard, who is the uncle of St. Bernard, who is going to sponsor them in the Catholic Church, write a letter, argue for them, and create their constitution, you know, is a nephew of one of these kings. And Albert Mackey, who wrote the book History of Freemasonry, which every, I, I do recommend because it has a lot of the legends of the Polychronicon, which is the oral traditions of Masonic history that goes back to the time of the creation of the Nephilim and the seven sciences that are so important to them. Again, another rabbit hole we won't go down right now. These are all Masonic adepts of the royal bloodlines. And what's important to understand about these ones, these are pure blood adepts that are initiated from childhood. And so they will have knowledge that is unbelievable compared to, let's say, somebody who's invited into a Freemasonry society today goes through the 33 degrees of the Scottish Rite or the three degrees of the York Rite. These, these kids know more than the first level adept from the time they are, you know, children and teenagers. Wow. What they're not allowed to do is take an adept title, which a lot of them, if you hear about a 32nd degree adept in the Scottish Rite, that's typically a pure blood out of the Masonic bloodlines because they're not allowed to take an adept title till a certain age in their late 20s or early 30s. I haven't quite nailed the exact time down, but so they call themselves a 32nd degree adept, although they probably have more knowledge than the leader of the local Masonic lodge that they mm -hmm. might be part of. So uh, it's just absolutely incredible. So when we, when we look at these were part of the ancient bloodlines and the Masonic polytheist bloodlines that go back into prehistory, and back into the reestablishment from Babel forward with their post-Diluvian history, we need to understand that there was only two monks and they were still of nobility. So these were not poor knights. And what's important to understand when I'm going with these bloodlines is that three of them in particular, but because they're kind of all related, 
and you know sister sort of ruling dynasties and they all intermarry they, they would have scion and scion is a significant term as in grafting in branches of bloodlines to uh, increase their pedigree of their nobility because the purer the bloodlines and the more ennobled grafted bloodlines put in places you uh, higher up in the hierarchy of, of this cult so but the bullion de payon and Anjou, they are from the lorraine region where the double cross of lorraine comes from won't touch that right now but those are the bloodlines that will marry into the habsburg lorraine dynasty and the king of jerusalem title that we'll talk about a little bit later probably but they take their bloodlines back to the last surviving member of the merovingian dynasty and that's dagobert mm -hmm. And so now you have this royal bloodline that is linking back to Merovingian, which is the most ennoble bloodlines of the kingships ever created to that point, at least according to their mythos and, and their records. And those bloodlines will go back to a whole bunch of Judaic bloodlines and will go back to Nephilim bloodlines, which represents the two major bloodlines. Uh, one uh, that is understood with the single cross and the double cross is the second one that is the hidden one, which goes back to the Nephilim. So these are not impoverished mics. These are the future rulers of kingdoms. Um, and they are going to start this so-called organization to protect pilgrims, which is an absolute rouge because in 1040, the Knights of St. John, which is a similar order, is established that is already doing that. <laughs> and <laughs> so right out of the gate, you know something's amiss here because they're not poor monks, they're all rich, uh, and they're going to create this order and then they become the most powerful military order ever created. They, they transcend governments in areas. They have their own temples and churches. They have their own priests. They write their own doctrines. And they create the largest and wealthiest banking system ever known and is the underpinning of Western finance and banking and in implementing many of the things that we take for granted today like transfer of money, checks, credit facilities, lending at rates other than what the money changers would do which were very very high and had base operations just in almost an uncountable amount of locations in the West and were dominating the Catholic Church and all of the thrones with this power and wealth and they were the military organization the go-to military organization in their strength with the best trained military staff in the world so all of a sudden this happens and it grows very very quickly into this so it doesn't take long before they're already there and again nobody ever asks how does that happen but it does uh, because it's all part of a larger organization and the organization typically is understood to have two levels to it similar to what you have in all secret societies but there's an important connection at the top level of the Templar society so you have the lower levels of initiates uh, who don't know all of the secrets to the secret societies even though they're carrying on sort of the fairy tale superficial rituals and understanding of that organization structure but only the adepts only the leaders know the true secrets and who they're truly worshiping so when they're worshiping baphomet for example which wow. is a goat god right um, they're not really told the true story it's almost like an allegory of john the baptist right but <laughs> 
uh, you know, with uh, with his head being beheaded, um, just as you have Nephilim being killed by taking their head. And they're again making an allegory here, but their god Baphomet, which they have a head of, strangely that they kind of relate with Baphomet. Uh, you can pronounce it Baphomet or Baphomet if people are wondering. And typically it's transliterated in English as Baphomet, but it's a French word. Uh, and typically that would be not one T, it'd be two T's and an E for a, a strong T. So typically Baphomet would be how it would be pronounced. Um, and I say that because I get emails on when I say things like this on <laughs> transliterations. So, um, and so in these goat gods that they're worshiping, you know, these are the, the degraded fallen angels who likely weren't sent to the abyss, but were part of the fallen angels uh, and akin to Azazel, who, you know, would have been an original seraphim serpent angel, but then is also degraded into this sort of goat god image, but he's in the abyss. And I think he's Abaddon and Apollyon, but that's another, that's another story. Mm-hmm. So you've got it, and you've got these rituals where they're spitting on the cross, even though they say they're Christians and that uh, they don't totally deny who Jesus is. Uh, they take a certain portion that he was a mortal prophet, uh, as opposed to the Word of God or the Son of God. And so you have this sort of Christian gloss, right? Um, but underneath is this polytheist religion, and we'll have the same type of thing that is going to be done in the end time because the Templars, one of their main agendas are is to create the new Babylon, their <laughs> words in their constitution. And uh, I have quotes from that. If people want to get hold of me, I'll send it to you from the Master Rotzelin in the order of, uh, of the, you know, it's written for the Templars. And so the other thing to keep in mind is that they're told or they sort of project that they're the keepers of the message. And the keeper of the message is the secret of their bloodlines that they also graft or scion uh, Jesus' bloodlines into uh, because they believe, and even though the Da Vinci Code is a fiction, it has a lot of accurate Gnostic doctrine in there, even though they write it as a fiction. And it's what they truly believe. And I cover that in detail in my book. So I won't go into that right now, just to lay down the premise that they believe that Jesus survived the the cross. They took him down before he died. He was nursed back to health, married Mary Magdalene, and had children. Uh, and the third one, Josephus, marries into the Celtic bloodlines, which are why all of the King Arthur ha- tales have Templars in it and has the genealogies and important history written in it, typically uh, as a typical fairy tale concept of how history is written in their belief system. And at the point of Aragon, who is a daughter of Belai, who married into the the Josephi's bloodline, and at Joshua's, I remember correctly, um, or the generation after, uh, th- she will marry Aminabad of the Merovingian dynasty. So what you have is now all of this signing of the bloodline, and you have this. Uh, message that is the secret of the bloodlines that the Templars are holding, and they're this Gnostic, polytheist religion that is molded into the West, uh, molded into Catholicism, and directly connected to all the royal bloodlines and what they call the Black Nobility and or Rex Deus. So I saw you mention Rex Deus a lot. So what is Rex Deus? That actually means the kings of God. And so they actually believe they are the kings of God. And that's 
how you start to put some of the allegories together in terms of exactly who they are, other than the names that if you start to Google and research and, and trace their genealogies, you know that they're the royal bloodlines. And they believe they are the royals that have the divine right to rule, given to them by the pantheon of gods, beginning in the antediluvian epoch, and then restated with the 70 governors of the earth after the flood, or the seven, 70 fallen angels, and that they are the divine representative of these pantheon of gods, given the power to rule, and that they have the genealogies that will trace their bloodlines all the way back to the Rephaim after the flood, and the Nephilim before the flood, and I actually think that they believe giants survived the flood as opposed to the second incursion, but again, that's their belief, not necessarily my preferred position, because I prefer second uh, incursion. But they say they have these genealogies, whether or not they're legitimate or not, but they're keeping these bloodlines so that they can make an end time play for the pedigree of Antichrist that they want to present in the end time. So they're, they're trying to basically find the bloodline that, that the Antichrist could be born into? They keep three Antichrist figures ready all of the time. Wow. Um, they would prefer to have the end time brought about sooner than later on their agenda, not on God's ordained time, but of course they don't have control over that, so they'll accept the ordained times. But they are going to present their Antichrist figure in the end time and present a pedigree of his qualifications through bloodlines. They're going to also create also all of these counterfeit miracles and false things and he's going to be a great orator and everything that, that the Christians know. And it's going to have to be so powerful that it's going to deceive the elect if that were possible. And Jesus says, indeed, they will, the elect will be deceived. And so there'll be evidence to reduce Jesus to a, a, a prophet status, uh, not erased from history, but not defined as the Word of God. And they'll also present that at a similar time. And what's important about all of this is that I think we need to be careful because there's going to be more than one Antichrist figure presented. As I said, they have three, but there are bloodlines all around the world. And they're all fighting for the ability to present their son who will be king of the world, because there can only be one that mm -hmm. will create that dynasty going into the new age that they like to call it. So even within the Western bloodlines, there's going to be a rival there. So as Jesus says, there'll be more than one Antichrist. We need to be aware of that so that we're not deceived. Okay. And then you mentioned that they were, they were Gnostic. So from the things I've seen so far, it's basically a, a tweak of Christianity. Just like you said, it's not a full swap, but on the surface, it kind of, it can kind of look like Christianity. Yeah. The, when somebody says they're a Gnostic Christian, uh, they'll talk a lot of the language uh, that a Christian is. But Gnosticism is, also has a full-blown polytheist sister religion, right? So there's a branch of polytheist Gnosticism that calls themselves Gnostic Christians who elevate uh, Jesus as a great prophet similar to the other sects that might elevate, let's say, Confucius or Hermes or uh, Buddha or any of the other great enlighteners that they like to raise up in their, in their religion for this global uh, pantheon that they have. This is one of those sects that they have that has been designed to infiltrate Christianity 
and to seed corruptions into and to lead people away. And so when you hear a whole bunch of things in Christianity that you can't take the, the Bible literally, or its history isn't quite accurate, or the resurrection is an allegory, that's Gnostic doctrine at work, because it's all of their policies, all of their doctrines. And so Gnostic Christians can look a lot like a, a Christian, and until you start asking some critical questions or having them expand their beliefs, you probably won't recognize that they are because they do recognize Jesus as a great individual just not as the Son of God um, and that's why you have su such an issue with the priesthood in churches and ministers and churches today because they're indoctrinated into those doctrines at seminary schools which is a sort of an outreach of what happens with the Templar organization so you can start to see how far that Leviathan starts to reach into 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 modern times so yes they do accept Jesus but not in the manner that Christians do. So when you mentioned that they were worshiping Baphomet, the um, the Templars, so they were worshiping that deity, but they were told it represented something different? Yes. Wow. At the lower <laughs> levels. At the lower levels. Because you can't tell them the whole truth, right? I mean, and these, you know, and many of these uh, people, you know, you would have to be invited to become a Templar. You just can't become one. You can become a uh, servant for one of the knights, but as a common person, you can't be a knight, right? So uh, not, not in their order. And so these would be educated people educated nobility whether or not they had been taught the true secrets or not but if you you know if they're telling you that baphomet is a goat god and they're not already indoctrinated into polytheism completely they're going to say wait a minute and this this is uh -huh. going to get out right so that's why all the important secrets and important allegories are kept at the adept level so if they can operate through this image of what they want to present just as freemasonry does with their good charity works and things like that and but at the core is where they're plotting and working their influence on the world so what is their connection to freemasonry well when what happens in 1307 is is you have this very strong organization that is all of a sudden taken down even though it's from within their own internal fights, it is still taken down. And what it shows to them is, is one organization might just become too powerful and set its own rogue agenda, which is part of the reasons they're, they're going to take them down. And secondly, is that you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket, for the most part, because if it does get taken down, you have to rebuild so many different things. So what happens is and the downfall of the Templars actually begins in 1188 with uh, the cutting of the elm ceremony at the Castle of Geezers, which is one of the places where they expect to introduce their grand monarch or antichrist who will enter make his entrance into the world through the gates um, in, in, in Geezer and Castle and Geezer town that's around it. In 1188, you have the Priory, Priory of Sion, the adept members of the Knights Templar splitting away. And this is a year after the Templars lose Jerusalem. So there's two big things, is, is that uh, they've lost Jerusalem and they believe, the people at the core believe for the most part, that the Knights Templar has lost their way. They have lost their way in terms of what they were designed to do and they've become too greedy 
in, ter in terms of what they're doing in banking, <laughs> although an important thing, isn't the only goal. And that they're not there, they didn't keep Jerusalem, they're not continuing to move forward with the agenda that they have to introduce the new Babylon and to set up a world government and that they leave and they have a parting of company, which is why you have, even though it's discredited, and I also have historical records that connect the Priory of Sion back to the creation of the uh, Knights Templar in relationship to it. And we can cover that off a little bit more in a few minutes, if you like. And if you want some historical references, just get a hold of me. I'll send that document to you. Anybody that's out there that's listening, genesis6conspiracy.com uh, and uh, shoot me an email there. And so they part. And so they don't stand up for the Templars at the breaking up in 1307. But they do form the Rosicrucian group which is the first major group that's going to be formed, which is going to be a significant part of the, the modern secret societies. And we first see them with their references and their actions in about 1400. That's in a very much a visible way in the recreation of the Sarkani Rond or the Ordo Dorconis to put their bloodlines back on the thrones and to continue the pursuits of Thoth, which is a key part of Rosicrucian, is the pursuits of Thoth, which is that ancient knowledge, which is part of their agenda, as well as to be the conduit organization for all these other organizations. So after the fall of the Templars, you first see the, uh, the secondary organizations being started with Freemasonry because many of the Knights Templar flee to Scotland and are going to come under the protection of the Sinclair family. So I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. And Sinclairs are the founders of Freemasonry, which is why you have those rituals uh, going back to the Knights Templar in the rituals that you were referring to. Sinclairs are the St. Clair family. St. Clair name comes from <laughs> the Treaty of St. Clair in 9-11 when Rollo, the Viking king that takes their bloodlines back to the Viking and Norse gods expropriates Normandy, which is obviously connected again with the uh, uh, King Arthur and why all of that Arthurian tale telling is important to sort of understand to follow some of their connections that they put out there in plain sight. But the Rollo clan changes their name to the St. Clairs in 9-11. And this is the, the bloodline that's going to produce William the Conqueror the De Bruces, the Sinclairs, and and more. I just I'll just cover a few quick names. And of course, William the Conqueror, 1066, is you know they retake the the throne back that they lost through the, the Round Table kings of King Arthur and their belief system away from the Saxons, and so they regain the throne that they lost. And Henry Saint Clair was a battle partner of Hugh de Payant. So even back then you have this intermarrying of these bloodlines and he is like the 12th member of the originating founders of the Knights Templar. It's written in the St. Clair histories, it's written in Masonic and uh, Gnostic accountings, but not in the public end. So he is also an addition to the, to, to the Knight. And this is the same bloodline that builds Rosalind Chapel, starts Freemasonry, and you have another set of scion bloodlines that are ennobling this European bloodline, right? 
uh, not only on the bloodlines that move out of the Middle East from the metallic dynasties and the bloodlines out of Jerusalem, but also the Norse dynasties, which is partly why the Stuarts, which are uh, an offshoot of the, the, the Bruce dynasty, Robert the Bruce, who you know, protects the Templars because he's been excommunicated by the church at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So it's so it's away from the oversight of the Catholic Church. He doesn't have a son as an heir, so his daughter uh, becomes queen and takes on the Stuart name with her marriage. And the Stuart dynasty becomes the Unicorn dynasty, which is another allegory that people should dig into because it's it's not the the horse and the horn that people make it out to be, but that's another rabbit trail, uh, but also reflects their history and their genealogies. They become the most noble bloodline at that point in time. And so this is the group that is protecting and starting up Freemasonry after the fall of the Knights Templar. So Freemasonry, their agenda is to oversee politics and the military and be a preparatory organization and a cult introduction organization that's going to bring people in, into the occult that they choose to bring in that may not have the pure bloodlines, but they're going to educate them. Uh, and if uh, deemed worthy or their bloodlines are there, they'll, they will become adepts. They may not go much further up the hierarchy because that's the third level. And in the, in the hierarchy, there will be somewhere from three to uh, at least nine that I'm aware of, of degrees, and some people say 12 or 13. Uh, but only the pure bloods that uh, are initiated from childbirth are going to reach those upper levels. And the Rosicrucians, and they'll answer up the ladder through the Illuminati up to the Rosicrucians, because the Rosicrucians is that intersectory organization that has at the top 50% level pure bloods and then all these other ones that they've educated and invited in and lower bloodline levels at the bottom level of the Rosicrucian society. And then all other organizations are going to sort of connect in from the sides. And the Rosicrucians were there to protect the history, uh, to protect the religion and to promote the history and the religion and to carry the message of the bloodlines and keep those bloodlines and to develop the seven sciences uh, and they're with their particular focus that they have on is alchemy so that they can produce produce the absolute which has the power to, to destroy worlds as goes their doctrines. The Illuminati, which is, you know, people say they're not created till the 1700s. I actually trace them back to being about in the 1500s um, with their beginnings and then having sort of this renewed organization in about the 1700s. But their agenda is to work on world government and to destroy Christianity. Uh, but you also have other organizations that are created uh, by the Templars or the Rosicrucians who are sort of that lead organization coming after. And they are sort of take their shape, the Rosicrucians, I should backstep, is that, you know, we, we see them as <clears throat> called the invisible ones with 33 members, which is why you have you know, the Council of 33 above uh, these other groups because as they start to uh, create lower groups that, you know, end up with the Rosicrucians and then the, the other ones below them uh, start to evolve. They're the ones who go to the Pope in 1317 and want to reform the Knights Templar visibly within the church with a few changes, but the church says, fine, we're going to take that organizational structure, we're going to put our people in there, and they say no. 
and they go underground and that's why they're called the invisible ones which is why that is part of the royal college his name because they it's known as not only the royal college but the invisible college representing the invisible ones because freemasonry and rosicrucian form the royal society in 1660 to 1662 with a charter through uh, a king of the stuart dynasty no coincidence again because mm. the stuarts were all uh, freemasons and their group is designed to control education outside the church and Which to develop this, the uh, the royal society okay and to control the sciences right and then you also have the rothschilds that are going to be created and then they have a different name they take the rothschilds name in 1812 and they form the london bank they're created to replace the banking arm of the templars that was taken down in 1307 outside the church but you also have the Jesuits that are created afterwards in the 1500s as well, who are called the New Templars. And they're created by the Rosicrucians to be the New Templars to reestablish control over changing Babylon over to, or the Catholic Church over to Babylon of the end time for them from within the church and to control the banking, which they take control of in about 1570, uh, with a leader of the Montessa order, which is another royal order of the bloodlines, being the third grand master, Borgia is his name, um, in 1570. And then they take over the banking arm of the Vatican church at that point in time. Uh, and that's also moved to Switzerland, where much of the money of the Templars went under a sister organization, which is set up, at, you know, set up to be known as the Knights of St. John, which is why Swiss banking has that same white cross. And then later the Rothschilds will also move their banking in the last century or so. And it's all now located under one rule over in Switzerland, all, all by design. So they've got control of all the world banking again through a lot of these strategic moves and, and organizations. So those are the major organizations that are all answering up to the Rosicrucians and then up to the Committee of 300, Council of 33, and then up to the 33 family or up to the 13 families. And that's current right now? Yes. That hierarchy? That hierarchy is. So if you have some of these other organizations that are inserting, like that's inserting into the sides, as I say, you have, let's say, like the uh, Club of Rome. Some people say they answer to the Committee of 300. Mm -hmm. Well, typically, you have purebloods that are in that order. The ones who aren't purebloods would be the lower part of the order. So... Um, you could say that the higher level hierarchy, hierarchy reports to the Committee of 300, but because all of the members of the uh, royal families are represented as purebloods in the Rosicrucians, they typically would answer through there and then up. Um, so, but some of the members on the uh, Committee of 300 would also, some of them might also be part of the, of the Committee of 300 or is in the Rosicrucians. So again, there's a bit of gray area there in terms of does all the reporting end at the Rosicrucians or do the purebloods that are part of the uh, Committee of 300, do they also report directly into the Committee of 300 and, and up to the Council of 33? And you make the same argument in organizational structure when you talk about the Bilderbergers, and that's the <laughs> easiest one to talk about. So with the Bilderbergers, we hear a lot about the meeting of the new money 
and the new bloods and trying and from that point in time they're trying to intermarry and ennoble their bloods they're called the pseudo blue bloods for the most part as opposed to the pure blood blue bloods um, but you have let's say like bill gates or bill clinton just as a couple of names they they're part of the lower level of the bilderbergers but you then you also have royal family members in there as well and so you have a mix there but the upper level of that is not what we know a whole bunch about that is just one of these uh, strategic meetings that the upper level of the Bilderbergers are going to download for the lower level to go implement over the next year and an update on progress and what they're trying to do but these are all purebloods that fit back into the pureblood order the structure so if you're going to understand secret societies you need to understand the religion and you need to understand how it fits in with the royal families and sort of a classic example of one of the orders of the royal families would be the Knights of the Seraphim, which come out of the Rolo bloodlines out of, hmm. of, out of uh, Sweden, Norway uh, region. And of course, they have the double cross of Lorraine, they have symbols of Seraphim angels, and it couldn't be more blatant with that royal family order. You have to be of royal bloodline to be part of that order, which is one of those classic examples where you see that direct connection. Whereas if you get into some of the other royal orders, you may not quite make that connection. You know, that would be, let's say, associated with uh, uh, Habsburg Lorraine or the Bourbon family of, of uh, Jerusalem. But they have things like the double cross of Lorraine is one of those things that's key to, and that's a two cross, that is part of the key of it. And, and Another part of what to follow in terms of these bloodlines is the King of Jerusalem title. Um, and so the current King of Jerusalem is King Philip of Spain, just as Juan Carlos carried that title before, just as it uh, was carried through to the Bourbon family from the Habsburg dynasty, Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty. Once that came over from the Lorraine dynasty, and that goes back to Baldwin III, or the second, being crowned in 1118 in a small priory on the Rock of Sion in Jerusalem, crowned King of Jerusalem, and that title has carried forward. And what's interesting about that title is that because they have these Judaic bloodlines, they also have another one signed in uh, from the descendants of Benjamites that intermarried into the Merovingian dynasty that migrated up the Danube River into Germany, and what they believe also through Mary Magdalene, who they believe is a Benjamite. So from two scions, they have this married in. And what's important about that is that in the time of the Exodus, in the time of the conquest of the Promised Land, Joshua awarded Jerusalem to the Benjamites. And so this King of Jerusalem title is part of their bloodline heritage that they believe. And that's why Jerusalem was so important to him. And that's why he was crowned King of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Jerusalem that you get movies about, you know, the kingdom of God movie would be a classic example of what they're kind of alluding to there. Um, and this is a title that they want to regain as part of the pedigree for Antichrist, not regain in that they don't carry forward the title today, but they want that King of Jerusalem title ritually crowned on the King of Jerusalem in the end time at the abomination to the Antichrist, which is why they have all of these genealogies and pedigrees and positioning that they've been doing to bring about world government, which is the other part of what Templars wanted to do was to have one world government 
with one universal religion that they call the New Babylon in place so that they can crown one of their descendants, the King of Jerusalem, in the temple and be the king of the world. So that was the Templar's original agenda, to make yes. a new world order type situation, yes. a new religion? And that's why, as you look at the agendas of all of these other groups that I mentioned, which are the main ones after, are all working directionally to bring that all about with a different specific agenda to do that. So the Jesuits not only control the banking inside the church, they also control the education and the doctrines and the teachings for the priesthood, just as you have groups outside of the Catholic Church who do that, and to get one of their people as a Pope, not just a Gnostic, but a Jesuit, because the Jesuits, you know, and Ignatius of Loyola, he, in his vision of Mary, believes that he was selected by Mary to reform the church, to form the new Babylon in the image of the Gnostic religion and is the soldier to do that. And he, that's why he created the Jesuits, although he was sponsored by the royal blood, black nobility money right from the beginning because they're there to uh, do their agenda. So when you see now a Jesuit Pope who is working on you know, uniting all of the world religions with the World Council of Churches, even though they're not an official member, they send, I think, 13 members or 17 members, are, are also actively working to build bridges to Islam, to Judaism, to uh, polytheist religions, and to bring all of these religions together so that you can have a universal religion with different segments underneath, and to rewrite the doctrinal beliefs uh, through the World Council of Churches, which where everybody has to go in and compromise on their doctrines to form this. And they also have this close association with the Mary apparitions, just as you have these Mary apparitions, which were part of the Lorraine dynasty with Joan of Arc. And, and she's venerated in a similar aspect in the Knights of St. John, which is a sister order. This Mary apparition thing is another distinct part of what's going on from a religious aspect that's going to be used, I think, in the end time to bring about this new Babylon in, in the end time. Wow. So how long has the Catholic Church been so nefarious? Has that been since their inception or...? It has been, but it, because it had so many different sort of monastic orders, uh, it was a little bit disjointed. So you might have one rise to the top, but they never had complete organizational structural takeover, except when the Templars were there. They had kind of essentially achieved that, but not in a way that the sponsoring bloodlines wanted it to be done. So they needed to replace it. And again, that happens with the Jesuits as the New Templars within the Catholic Church. And they're actually disbanded in the early 1800s and then reformed with all of their rights by 1870 and start their march back to power again to, to complete that agenda. But again, you have rival factions and they all want control. And, and so most of the bloodlines in the black nobility of the Jesuits are the Italian bloodlines that take their bloodlines back to Caesar, Julius Caesar and other emperors and back to the gods of Rome. So you have, again, competing genealogies and bloodlines all wanting control. So um, and this is going to continue to happen just, you know, as they're not 
totally united, but directionally they are united, and uh, they keep moving moving their agenda forward. So yeah, that you know exactly what they've been trying to do right from the beginning, and it's the Templar dream. Uh, they just ha all have a different sort of individual vision of what that should look like and who should be in control. But we have that today with with a Jesuit pope, and now they have made changes. And I think that there will be absolute control from a Jesuit basis going forward. I don't think Pope Francis is Antichrist, and uh, I don't think he's false prophet. I think he might be preparing the way for the false prophet, who will make the way for Antichrist because everything's got to be counterfeited. So mm -hmm. I would put false prophet as the Christian Elijah, um, and. This is also why they draft John the Baptist as well as part of the religion, just as they draft Jesus as, as being a Gnostic, because they need to wrap all of this in to make this new Babylon work. So they don't need to cut all the threads, they just need to tie them all together. Yes. Wow. And to bring back what they would, they would call the original pantheon, right? in two cases one as what it was in the original antediluvian civilization with the same basic uh, premise and gods that were in all the gods and all the civilizations around the world however many you want to believe whether it's one four seven nine eleven there's different accountings uh, in polytheism they all had the same gods only with different vernacular names which is why you have the same root religion and the same types of religions all around the world. And this is the religion that crosses the flood in Masonic and Gnostic belief that Hermes partners with Nimrod at Babel and uses the seven sciences and the knowledge to build Babel City and Babel Tower and institutes the Enochian mysticism created before the flood. This is Enoch son of Cain as opposed to Enoch son of Jared. This is the religion that the Essenes believed in. This is the religion of Heliopolis that they believe Moses brought with them and at the point of the monarchy, and perhaps before all of the records are changed and monotheism is the rogue portion that takes over the religion of Moses. That's what the Essenes believe, it's not what I believe. But it's important to understand what the other side believes because it's what they do with this information. And the mm -hmm. Essenes were the first monastic order in the West, right? They're, they were this order of ascetic, people who, who, for the most part, didn't marry, they ate rigid diets, they did self-punishment, all sorts of different things. And this is the orders that are created within Catholicism from the Essenes, orders like the Calabrian monks, the Cistercian monks, the Augustines, the Franciscans, all have a similar monastic order. So why is that? That is because Freemasonry and the Masons and these bloodline families take a lot of their heritage back, not only to Judea with the families and the bloodlines that come out of there, that they believe these scenes kept those genealogies on record at the temple, which the Templars knew about from the Calabrian monks and other uh, monastic orders before, and excavated at Jerusalem as part of the treasure and brought back to, to Europe. And they also believe that the Essenes were also the ones who had uh, within their group the royal bloodlines of Israel and Judah, or Judah, not Israel, because Israel is the northern kingdom. So the southern kingdom of Judah that's reformed after the return from Babylon. And that the Essenes 
were called and their royal bloodlines and their supporters of this royal bloodlines, they called them the princes of Jerusalem, which is the same name Rex Deus takes on as being descended from. And as the scenes after the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 70 uh, CE, noting that they had control of the temple at that point in time, which is why they knew where those records were hidden, they escaped to Europe as part of the polytheists, as part of the Manichaeans, as part of this greater uh, Gnostic uh, religions. And at the rise of Christianity, they have to go underground, right? Because they're being persecuted out of Europe by the Catholic Church. And so they create these monastic orders within the church, which you know become very obvious in terms of their influence with the Cistercians as being part of the founding members of the Knights Templar as being the ones, uh, the group that St. Bernard comes out of, who writes their constitution, who sponsors them to become a formal order in uh, 1128 of the Council of Troy, and who dons the Red Cross on their order as part of the ancient Red Cross order that goes back to the Temple of Solomon, that the Masons believe that this night order goes back to. So I know I said a lot there, but I just wanted to connect <laughs> some dots in terms of how this organization starts to weave its way back into history. And these Gnostics, as they hid themselves within Catholicism, mold into the Roman Collegia, which built all the buildings and in particularly the churches <laughs> for uh, the Christian Church once they came to power with Constantine in the 300s, early 300s. And so they needed these orders uh, and builder guilds, which were all interwed and working together to build the churches. And so they build all of the churches up to the time of the Knights Templar where a change happens. But before I get into that, I'm just going to go backtrack and say that this builder knowledge goes back through the Pythagorean mystery schools back to the uh, right after the flood to the Dionysian builders who built all of the early temples and megalith structures right after the flood from this knowledge that was passed on to uh, the post-diluvian descendants that Hermy finds that becomes first evident in the Babel story in, in the Bible. And it goes from the Dionysians over to the Phoenicians and the King of Tyre where King Solomon gets the technology and a lot of the resources and structural materials to build the first temple, which is where that first night order comes from. So you have, again, this building order understanding that goes with them, just as the Templars take over the builder guilds after they bring this knowledge excavated from Jerusalem back to Europe, and we get this explosion of the new architecture, which becomes Gothic churches and extraordinary sizes of buildings with all of these windows that you couldn't do with the old technology because, you know, that old sort of style, the weight of the stones would be so heavy it would collapse the structure. But with these flying buttresses, you could now build these windows in and build these great monasteries. And this is the knowledge that they brought back from Jerusalem that explodes into the Gothic cathedrals. And then these Gothic cathedrals are all dedicated to Our Lady which has two levels to it. One being Mary Magdalene, 
not Mary, mother of Jesus, as the superficial story goes. The other one being Our Lady Goddess, which is the allegory. So it's Isis, Gaia, Ishtar, Astart, Astaroth, again, representing the names of, of the same type of goddess out of all the different pantheons. That is a part of their whole sort of understanding of bloodlines and genes and genealogies. Notice the connection there, and the gene of Isis, as they like to label it, which is one of the DNA markers for their descendants, which is why they're banking all of this DNA knowledge now, and creates through that gene this bloodline that is also identified that a lot of people believe is Rh negative uh, of their bloodline as further proof of their pedigree. I think there's, there's circumstantial evidence for that Rh negative and is strong, but I don't have smoking proof that that's. Uh, what it is, but it is true that they believe in what they call the uh, gene of Isis, which is the spark of the divine that they're trying to unite in world government and world religion in the end time to have this harmonic vibration convergence to evolve into gods that they're going to promise everybody for the end time, but only the people that have have those those sort of traits. So you have all of these images on Gothic cathedrals that aren't Christian. Yeah, oils, yeah. all sorts of horrible things. The seven uh, sacred sciences, on and on and on. I detail a number of it in my book, but these are clearly mm. not Christian symbols, and people just they just accept it's fine. They don't ask any questions, <laughs> and nobody asks how that happened. Until you start peeling back the onion, you can't understand the world. Yeah, that like you see the there's even like sex acts on some of the the structures they build. Like yeah. just weird stuff like that. And yeah. so that, that was knowledge that they found under the temple? That's what they say. And they brought that back and uh, St. Bernard helped them hide it. And then it moved off to other places, uh, particularly uh, a lot of the knowledge went to Scotland to be uh, cared for by Freemasonry and the Sinclairs and then moved elsewhere after that. Some people think Oak Island. But I was listening to uh, a Templar in Canada, um, and uh, he said, no, they're going to find some small things there that are left behind, but that moved off to other locations throughout North America, widely dispersed, and on native land, Aboriginal American land, because governments and the law have no oversight there, so they don't have to worry about government seizing it uh, or other people taking it and they made treaties with uh, the various nations that they did that. And then in in the chapter on Templars that you wrote about, you mentioned that uh, the Ark of the Covenant and other things that they, they, they say they found that stuff? Yes, that, that's in part of their legends. I, I mean, I don't believe they found the Ark of the Covenant. Um, they either created an Ark of a Covenant from information in the Bible or what they had or they found a copy of one. You know, down in Ethiopia, there's several Ark of the Covenants and that <laughs> they claim to be, right? Um, so I don't think they found the Ark of the Covenant. Um, we don't hear about the Ark again until the end time in heaven, right? And in the Apocrypha, in the King James Version Bible, before it was eliminated, there's a passage in there where Jeremiah buried it in a mountain somewhere. Again, I don't know where that's true because it's apocrypha. What we do know is, is it just sort of disappears, but they claim they have it. But again, again, it could be, because everything they do is a counterfeit. I expect they create their counterfeits as well. And they'll use that as part of this knowledge and pedigree and credibility layout for Antichrist in the end time. So expect to see a counterfeit Ark of the Covenant.
whether or not it has the ability to do the powers or not. I don't know. That was described in the Bible. But I think it'll have some counterfeit powers. But we know it's not going to be the true one because we know in prophecy where it's going to be in the end time. And if they ever tried to touch or open or look upon it without the proper uh, way of doing it and, and chosen people of God to do it, they're going to get killed. We get those accounts in the Bible. So it, it, whatever it is, it's going to be a counterfeit. You know, just as they're going to have... Uh, you know, a counterfeit Armageddon uh, that Antichrist can use as part of his resume to fake being the false messiah. So it's got to be a war of such size and scale that's got to look like Armageddon, which is probably the Revelation 9 war, which is the same as the Joel 1 and 2 versus 3 and 4 war, and is likely the Gog war that is being talked about. We know the Gog war is an end time war as opposed to the other one that's in Revelation 20, because in Revelation 39, it clearly says the second exodus is going to happen there. And, and in Ezekiel 38, it says the latter time. So different prophecy than what a lot of people like to confuse in, in Revelation 20. But again, that's another rabbit trail. But it, everything is connected as, you know, as we have these conversations, you can go, like I say, in a billion different directions mm -hmm. and all connect them back in to the same kind of narrative. Once you understand what the sort of organizational structure is and who's running things and how that sort of works. And it begins, I think the easiest way is learning about the Templars because that's that intersection. And uh, I'll be uh, in my next uh, show, I'll be talking that, that will come out in, um, I think, Sunday that I'll have. Uh, it'll actually go from Babel to the Templars. And then wow. I'll be talking about that. And then there's two more after that, what happens after the Templars and then the end time. But it's an interesting four-part series I'm doing on the organizational structure because I spent a lot of time on identifying the players and the roles. And now I want people to understand how that organizational structure all works together. That'll be a huge help. That'll be a huge help for people to see it all laid out. Okay, Gary, thank you for that that first part of our discussion. Is there anything else you want to say in closing? You know, I think we've covered a lot. I think a lot of people have a lot to chew on and think about. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more uh, in some of these areas in part two as it connects into some of the subjects that we're talking about. But I think uh, what what the people have heard already is is enough at this point and uh, so stay tuned to part two because we're not done all right now that was a lot of information go ahead rewatch this feel free to rewatch it take notes do everything you got to do now you know the dark origins of the templars and the hierarchy of all of the other secret societies most of them and where they fit in that's stuff that i didn't even know I have gary on judging by the one time i've had him on it was great so it's always great to have him on and we will see you guys next week. Again, for our paid content, we're going to get into next week's guest. I'm going to tell you which reading you need to get done for the time. And I can't wait to see you guys next week. God bless you. Stay rad.